Now, you know how I always tell you that you should be inviting people to come to church with you and, and, and that if you have faith in the preaching of the word here, that it should be not a private guilty pleasure, but it should be more public, right? You remember me saying this to you. And I want to talk to you this morning uh, with Stephen and David. They got warning a couple minutes before the first service. Stephen, I think, had seven minutes. So Stephen's going to preach to you with facial tics this morning. (laughs) This is the most disorganized I've ever seen, Stephen. But it's also the best I've ever heard him. As Allie would say, just saying. (laughs) What? No offense, just saying. Um, What we want to do is make life happy for mothers today. There are two ways of making life happy. One is by exhorting their husbands to love them, and the other way is by getting their children to honor them. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, is getting your children to honor their mother. (laughs) Okay, and there will be things that will be helpful to those of you who are single. Um, All of us are children of parents. Um, By the way, I I saw Glenn last night. I miss him. I went to your blog, and you haven't updated it for a long time. And there was big Glenn. And he was a father to us all, and he gave me such strength as I preached. So all of us are sons of people in the church and parents, fathers to people in the church. And I had the joy this morning of saying to a man who was worried about his children, I said, you don't need to worry about your children. They have many, many fathers in this church. They'll do well. So we want to talk to you today about what it is to make your children helpful to their mother, all right? And so I'm going to start, and because I'm the oldest, I get to be the meanie, and I'll do something that is pretty intense, and it'll get progressively easier as, as the sermon goes on. And David then will get the joy of giving you the sweet part at the end. I want to talk to you about uh, disciplining of your children, and I want to start by reading from Scripture, Um, and I'll read several things from Scripture, Um, but first, this is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. I have to admit that I never saw this text until the last few years. And now I can't stop thinking about it because it seems so foundational to raising children, but I've never, I never heard anybody talk about this text in raising children. And I've never talked about it, but here it is. Genesis 18, verse 19. This is God speaking of Abraham. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. I have chosen him so that 
he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him. So anybody that says that the Bible nowhere tells a husband to command his wife has not read this verse, right? A husband is to command his wife. What? What is he to command her? To get the beer? No. It says he may command his children and his household. She is a part of his household. After him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham, let's turn off our phones. Everybody turn off your phones. That's the second one. Let's make sure there won't be three and four. All right? (laughs) I'm so glad when other people's phones go off because then I remember to turn mine off. Everybody turn yours off right now. Okay, all right. I hear them going off. All right. (laughs) For I have chosen him so that he command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, it's so interesting, you guys, to think about God accomplishing what he commands by the father of the household commanding. And that that father commanding his household and his children will be the means by which God accomplishes. Isn't that weird? You know, because you just think, well, God's God. He can do anything he wants. Yes, it's his pleasure to have us command our households to keep the way of the Lord. And then he will accomplish what he's purposed. Do you see? And that's always the way it is with God. God does not despise uh, the work of man. He commands it. And then he's pleased to bring about his purposes through the work of men who are obedient to him. Then second, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Afterwards, um, Doris Weeks and Ron were here in the first service, and she said to me, what's that word exasperate? Well, the, the, the word exasperate means to, uh, to cause to get angry, to stir up anger. All right, so don't stir up anger in your children. All right, what is far and away the most frequent way that fathers exasperate their children? It's absolutely no question about it, I think. <laughs> but then what do I know? <laughs> I think always the thing that's most exasperating to sons is that no matter what they do, they can't please their father. And that's such a, such a terrible thing to do to your children. <laughs> You know, you always, you know, always one-upping them. You know, always showing that you're better than they are. You know, men have an expression for it. I won't use it in a sermon. But what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to encourage our sons, not discourage them. They should see that we, all the time, are delighting in them. And if a father doesn't delight in his son and his daughters, then 
I guarantee you their life will be a life spent as sort of a, a prunish kind of apple, all shriveled up the rest of their life because they, they were never able to delight their father. And so if you want to know how, how to keep from exasperating your children, my answer is delight in them. And your children are so delightful. I, I walk by the choir behind the... It's like, how do I decide which one I'm going to hug? They're absolutely gorgeous, the children of this church. And yet so many of you as fathers don't delight in your children. It's like, dude... Look at these kids, you know? <laughs> All right, that wasn't even in here. So Stephen will talk a little bit about that, but I want to talk about something that's... Um, you have to understand, this is in the context of... of uh, I'm going to read a little bit from a chapter I'm writing on fatherhood, and this is the chapter on house fathers in the home. And this is a section where I fill in something that Doug and Heather told me I had left out. So in the first part of the chapter, I talk about how you should have an order of worship in your discipline, and it should be ritualized. It should be so formal and so steppy that it's very clear to the children it's not your funk, it's not your impatience, it's not your anger, right? And so you have a call to worship, and then you have a prayer of confession, and then you have an assurance of pardon. Can you understand this with discipline? And it's formal, and there's a place that you go to do it. You know, you don't do it in front of everybody, right? You know, and this protects them and you because it's a ritual, and rituals are not subject to our whims, our impatience, or our anger, right? And you should never discipline out of anger. But you will, and when you do, you should always apologize. Right? So don't ever do it, and then when you do it, apologize. Now, I could go on and on and on and give you the parameters for discipline, but we do that all the time. If you ever have a child, come in, and I will meet with you for an hour and a half and give you all that stuff. That's the context for what I'm going to say now. All right? And if you take what I'm going to say now and you say, well, Tim said to do this and this is what you do and you don't do the liturgy and the formality and the order and the progression of the private room and make sure you're not angry, then you're not doing what I tell you to do. In other words, every sermon can't protect from all the perversity that you're capable of making it. Do you understand me? The context for what I'm going to teach is the normal discipline that's formal, that has a private place, that's not in anger. But this morning I want to teach you something that many of you don't know. And that is there is another kind of discipline that you must not neglect. And it's what Doug and Heather call, and now I call, the swoop. And I want to talk to you about the swoop. Okay? Normally, spanking should be ritualized whenever possible, and parents should not strike their children in anger, never. But there are times when it is not possible to ritualize your discipline. There are times when it cannot be private, and there are times when it may well look like you're simply lashing out at your child in anger. It may look that way. 
In such cases, it's sin to avoid spanking out of fear of your friends, your relatives, or especially your wife. Of her misunderstanding or criticizing you. Now let me illustrate. Say you're sitting beside your wife on the couch, she's nursing the baby, and you feel her jump and say, ouch, what do you do? Well, if I was within arm's length, and it was my child, I would reach over and flick the top of the baby's head hard enough that the baby would cry. Trust me, I've done it. Of course, your wife won't like this. She'll be irritated with you and say, he didn't mean anything. He doesn't know what's going on. Don't hurt him. How do you respond? Say to her, I know he didn't mean to hurt you, but the fact is he did hurt you and I won't allow it. (laughs) It's so simple. I know normally you ritualize discipline, make sure it's not anger, and you set up the place to do it, and you give them warning, and normally that, but when there's a little baby nursing, and that baby bites its mother, whop! That's what we call the swoop. It's the swoop. Now, you may think that this has nothing to do with Scripture, But listen, if the baby does it again, you flick his head again and he'll cry again and your wife will get irritated with you again. But it won't take too many flicks for your son to learn not to bite his mother. And isn't that a wonderful state of affairs? That a mother is not being bit by the child she's nursing. I mean, you think about how stupid it is that I'm having to teach this. It's like, do you really want your child biting your wife? Now, in the first service, I don't remember who it was, but I said, how many, t- how many times does it take? And, and, and I think it was Doris. She went like that. And I wanted to say, no, I think that. I guarantee not more than that. If there is a father who goes whop, on a baby's head, twice, that probably will take care of the biting. I mean, you have to do it right away. You know, you can't, you have to swoop. You know? Negative reinforcement, right? I mean, think about it. You certainly can't reason with him, right? And you can't have rituals and full-fledged spankings when you're teaching your nursing son not to bite. Positive reinforcement is impossible. What can you give your son to make him happier as he's nursing at his mother's breast? Everybody should be roaring. (laughs) It's hilarious. It's true, he's not angry with his mother and he means no disrespect. So what? Your son should not be allowed to hurt your wife. This is a basic principle of manhood. Nobody should be allowed to hurt women. Can we remember this? And that includes your son, even if he doesn't know what he's doing. All right? God provided your wife a husband 
and your son a father to make sure he doesn't bite his mother. He doesn't hit his mother. He doesn't yell no at his mother. And he doesn't speak disrespectfully to his mother. (laughs) Now... Now you know why you're all sort of resenting me when I talk about that baby because the truth is we want to act as if we don't hear that disrespect when he's a teenager. Listen, it's all of a fabric. If you don't have the ability of keeping your son from biting his mother, you certainly will not discipline him so that he doesn't speak disrespectfully to his mother when he's in high school. You either create a culture of safety for motherhood in your home or there will not be safety for the mother of your home. There's no middle path. Jake gives an example of this. One of our pastors, a college pastor, Jake Menzel, the other day he, he writes, my daughter was playing outside and strayed too close to the street. A car was coming and I wasn't close to her. What did I do? I yelled and I was urgent. She came to me crying and scared and unaware of the danger she had been in. Was I angry? Was I hateful? No, I just needed to get her to safety. Were her feelings hurt? Yeah, but it was a very small price to pay. I would jump in front of a car for her a thousand times over. My daughter is all of two and a half years old. She's not mature enough to understand the love that was behind that warning. It's okay that her feelings were hurt. I was there to hold and comfort her and assure her I wasn't angry. She'll learn in time. Isn't that beautiful? Each of these cases are rare times when fathers must act quickly and with such resolve that the pain inflicted on the child falls on him so quickly and firmly that he is not likely to act that way again. Let me put it this way. Someone once pointed out that foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, meaning rules are made to be broken. You and I have a rule that we always ritualize discipline. We give warnings. We then give spankings. We give them privately. We have enough time and space between infraction and punishment to guard against any expression of temper on our part, as well as any perception on the part of those watching that we're simply using the child as an outlet for our frustrations in life. All well and good, normally. This is good and necessary, but following our ritual of spanking is sometimes foolish. And I've given you some examples where I believe you'd do well to use what Heather and Doug call the swoop, is in swoop in, swoop up the child, and flick his head or spank his bottom so quickly there can be no doubt what he's being spanked for and that this behavior will absolutely not be tolerated. (laughs) Right? Right? Not in the smallest degree. It is so evil that all the normal rules and rituals are thrown out the window. The discipline comes from nowhere, and it's an immediate, and it's intense, and it leaves the child with two growing convictions that he better not ever bite his mother again, and that he should fear his father. Now, think about that is that maybe where our problem is? That none of us really have the faith to teach our sons to fear us. Huh? Is that where our resistance is? How can it be right to teach your son to fear you? Okay, now I got you, right? 
Let me tighten the noose. How will your son learn to fear God if you work hard to keep him from fearing you? The Apostle Paul describes with great specificity man's depravity, his wickedness, in Romans 3. And then he brings it to an end with this summary statement. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's the summary. We must lead our children out of this damnable state. And one step on the path to his salvation is teaching your son to fear his father. Is this worth having your wife irritated at you? Is it worth having your in-laws think you're a meanie? Is it worth being misunderstood? I hope so. God's word records that he does not always wait for the day of judgment to punish us. And his punishments are as instructive as the words of his prophets. Think of him disciplining King David and David's paramour Bathsheba by taking the life of their son. He was a baby. He died. This was God's discipline of King David. More, think of God's inbreaking judgment of the entire earth in the flood. Okay? Think of the fire and brimstone he sent on the men of Sodom. Think of the sudden death of godly Abigail's husband. We haven't had anybody name their son this yet in this church. (laughs) Nabal. And then in the New Testament, we read this of King Herod. This is from Acts 12. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Wicked Herod got no warning at all. The angel of the Lord swooped down and struck him. He was eaten by worms and died. But maybe you think this sort of treatment is never meted out to the people of God. Then consider how God responded when the men violating his explicit command transported the Ark of the Covenant by an ox cart. And Uzzah reached out his hand to stabilize the ark when it was in danger of falling. When he touched the ark, God killed him. It says in 2 Samuel 6, But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. But maybe you think this is just Old Testament, the Old Testament God. And God in the New Testament is more compassionate. Well, then what do you make of Ananias and Sapphira? In the midst of the church, they lied to God, and God swooped in and struck them both dead. After her husband had come to the church and been killed by God for his lie, Sapphira herself arrived, and we read, Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. 
Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, notice, the wife is held accountable. Okay? All right? The wife is held accountable also. Why have you agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, I can completely understand that for some of you who don't know me, you think that I'm a hard nose, all right, and that I don't love my sons, and that I'm not tender with them, and nothing could be the further from the truth. You do not have the ability of taking delight in your sons and loving them the way you should if they don't fear you. It is the obedient son that is delightful to his father. And God has ordained this way for us to create obedient sons. Do you see? And so I have an unbelievable freedom to love my children. Do you understand this? And so if you see me around my children, (laughs) you know, number one, that I just don't have any greater joy. All right? None. Except maybe your children. And sometimes a little competition. I can't tell whether I'm happier to have Nick take Taylor off my hands or that I get Reza. (laughs) It's kind of nip and tuck. You know? Listen, God is pleased at the beginning of his church to have the death of a man and his wife. This is God's intention. God God did not get surprised by this. Okay? And what happened is a result of God disciplining, in-breaking swoop, just like this, right? Here's what we read happened in that church as a result of this. The Holy Spirit records right after this, says this, and great fear came over the whole church. (laughs) It sounds stupid to say it, doesn't it? Really, great fear came over the whole church. You don't say, right? But listen, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. In other words, people outside of the church heard about it also. Great fear came over all of them. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. And then it says this, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. (laughs) I mean, think about it. It makes perfect sense. No hypocrisy then. You know, that, that was tried. It didn't work. And so nobody else dared to associate with them. Only sincere hearts, okay? However, the people held them in high esteem. In other words, the people that weren't there because they knew it would be hypocrisy for them to be there, they still really respected them, held them in high esteem. And then it says this, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. 
You know, we think that the way of getting people to be added to God's kingdom is for us to make the bar real low, to make the hurdles real short, to, to remove all the offense, to, to make ourselves just so cuddly, so velveteen rabbity, that people will just flock to us. And that's, that's, that's not modern, that's real old, you know, and it never works. Because the minute persecution comes, those flocks are gone, Right? The way to get people into the kingdom of God is to teach them the fear of God so that then they flee to the cross of Christ. If you as a father don't teach your children to fear you, you're lying about the nature of God. All right? And don't set this up as if they have to choose between my tender affection and fear. In the God we fear and love embrace. Okay. My standard in this church for this, and I'm going to say it because his cousin is here today, is Nick Schroeder. I know Nick very well, trust me. And I don't really care to meet all the people that are coming for the wedding. Because the one person I want to meet is not here. And that's his father. And Nick's father was a hard man. And sometimes it's hard for us to have faith when our fathers set the bar high. But I'll tell you something. You talk to Nick about his father and see, just watch him and see if he loves his father. He loves him. And I've told you that the time that I'm most thankful for my father was when he kicked me out of my home. So fathers, please have the faith to teach your children to fear you. Make your home a place of perfect safety and respect for their mother. Any disrespect, swoop. And if they've learned that disrespect from you, as one of mine had, you repent and tell that child that you taught them that sin and that it won't happen again. Okay? All right. I know, that was rigorous. To fear, we need to add love. I like structure a lot. He's right about this. I have no idea what this says, but there it is. Something. It says something. And what most parents want when they come and talk to us about uh, discipline, about dealing with their children, what they're looking for, what you're looking for is structure. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a system, it's a formula. Uh, you know, here, this is what my son does, this is what my daughter does. Tell me what to do. When this happens, what do I do now? What do I do now? What do I do now? We want structure. We want system. And that's great. We need structure. What Tim has written in the book that he's writing, which all of you someday will be able to read, hopefully, is excellent about structure. But there's 
more than just structure. What we need is the context in which that structure makes sense. Turn with me to um, Psalm 103. I want to read a few things to you. Think about what God's discipline is like, what his fathering is like. This is shown to us in Psalm 103. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. There's the fear, it's there. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And here's verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Compassion. He disciplines us in the context of compassion, tenderness, patience, loving kindness. When it talks about Jesus in the Gospels feeling something, and it actually is pretty, pretty common, but when it talks about Jesus feeling something, do you know what the most common thing it is that he feels? Compassion. He looks upon the crowds and he felt compassion for them. He looks at the woman and has compassion on her. He looks at the man who's you know, crippled and he has, feels compassion over and over and over. Jesus feels compassion. He learned that from his father. Just like a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If we're going to have discipline that works in our home, it has to be in the context of love and compassion. Turn to Psalm, or Proverbs 23. So often we hear parents coming to us saying, I'm doing everything you told me to do. I'm doing all the stuff. I'm doing all the system. I'm doing all the ritual. I'm doing all the process, and it doesn't work. My children don't obey me. That's because it's more than just a system. There has to be love. Look at, look at Proverbs 23. I want you to listen to what this sounds like. This is the book of Proverbs is a father talking to his son, teaching his son. Look at the kinds of things he says to him. It's all over the Proverbs. This is just one place. Proverbs 23, starting in 15. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart will also be glad. 
And my innermost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. Now, just think about, how does that work? What makes that work? What makes, that, what makes a son hear that? When he says, when a father says, my son, if, you, if you're wise, my heart is glad. What makes that work for the son? What makes that motivate him to want to be wise? It's love, Right? When you heard those words that I read to you from Psalm 103, this is what God is like. Tender, compassionate, kind, patient, filled with loving kindness, showering his children with benefits. What does that make you want to do? It makes you want to obey him. You feel his love and you want to love him back. This is how parenting works. It goes on, verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely, I mean, hear the wisdom of this to a a son. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad And let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Again, how does that work? Why is that a motivation? You, fathers, husbands, you need to want your wife to be happy. And you do that by having obedient children. Children, there's some of you left in here. Ah, there's some over there. You know what to do for your mom today? It's Mother's Day. What? That's right. And that'll make her happy. Yeah. That's right. Look at the next thing it says. This is verse 26. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Give me your heart. That's where discipline works. Not just in a rigid system, but in the context of love, mutual affection, warmth, compassion, tenderness. Give me your heart, son. A son, if your sons, if, how do I put this? If you have your hearts, the hearts of your sons, if you have the hearts of your sons, that's how it is. Of course they'll obey you. If they want to make you happy, then obedience will not be a a fight all the time. One last thing. In Ephesians 6, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. And that word bring them up is a gardening word. It's a word that is used for a little plant. When you... When, you, when it's tender, it's just a start. It's starting to grow. It's very fragile, and you, you take care of it. You feed it. You 
fertilize it, you give it sun, you give it water, you protect it from the cold. That's the word. Bring them up. What kind of dirt do little plants grow in? Not, not deserts, not harsh, arid, dry, prickly, barren sand, but rich, dark, sweet, soft, warm, fertile soil. Your marriage, husband, wife, your marriage is the soil that your children are growing up in. And that's probably the most important thing you can do for your kids, is give them a, a home that is not desert, wilderness, barren, dry, prickly, but warm, soft, deep dirt that comes from the relationship between mom and dad. Children are like little Geiger counters. And what they're picking up on is tension, vibes. Little babies, even little babies, know when there's something not right. And if that's the home they're growing up in, it won't, it won't go well with them. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, respect and honor your husband. And then you'll have children who will be sweet. We all know Hebrews chapter 11 as the faith chapter, right? Everybody know that? Except for the people that don't? Okay. Um, So what does it say in Hebrews chapter 11? In verse 6 it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, how do we seek God? Do we seek God in a laboratory trying to find the God particle? Is that how we seek God? Do we seek God by uh, getting flashlights out and looking under things and around behind places to try to see if we can find him? How do we seek God? Well, the chapter actually shows us how we seek God, but it's kind of strange. It's kind of, it's not intuitive when you look at it. What does it say after that? It starts talking about people, and it starts talking about things that they did, right? So it talks a list of of people from the Old Testament and things that they did. Well, it gets to verse... 13, and it says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, and having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Okay, those who say what? What did they say, these people? Is there a secret phrase that people who seek God say? No. No. It says that what they're saying is that they're exiles. But it's not in the saying of it. It's not just saying, hey, I'm in exile. I'm wandering. I don't belong here. I belong somewhere else. The saying of it is in action. And so as they're confessing, it says they're confessing that they were strangers and exiles. As, as they're taking action, they're confessing. And the action they take 
are actions of obedience, very specific things that they do. And this is how they demonstrate that they believe that God is and that they seek after him by doing, by obeying, by doing very specific things that, that aren't normal. Did you read the list of things that people did? Hiding people under straw on the roof of their house and all these different kinds of things that they do in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that they do that are not normal. Okay, so Annie and I were talking to a grandmother from our church a couple of days ago, and she was telling a story about how she was uh, with her granddaughter, and her granddaughter needed to be disciplined. Well, she was in a public place, and she had to find another place to go to to discipline her granddaughter, and so she went outside of the building that she was in, and now she's in the parking lot. And so you've got a, a building with glass walls or windows, and you're, st- you're sitting down in the parking lot, and, and there are people about, and it's kind of like being at home plate at the stadium, right? And then she says, well, what am I going to do? So she walks to the, to the car, she opens the car, the granddaughter gets in, the granddaughter lays down, and she spanks the granddaughter through the door, So it's not so conspicuous in the stadium. It's just a car and people looking and saying, what's that woman doing? Okay, what was the situation that was going on? What happened before we got to the car? Before we got to the car, all the way back at the beginning, there was a moment when it was determined that granddaughter needs discipline. Granddaughter needs discipline. And it was at that moment that a little activity happened inside. At that moment, grandmother had to decide if she would confess that she is an alien and a stranger on this earth. She had a moment where she had to decide. All of us, mothers, fathers, men, women, husbands, wives, children, all of us in our lives, if we're trying to live by faith, believing in God, we're always, day by day, having those moments of crisis. And in that moment of crisis, consciously or subconsciously, we're making decisions as to whether or not we will confess that we are aliens. And then we take the action, and the action is an alienating action, most typically, because the action of God's people is typically foreign and alien to the world. And the actions that you need to take as a believer in faith will be counter to this world. Everything we do in obedience to God is counter to this world because in this world people live in rebellion against God. And so when we live by faith, we're obeying him. And we're confessing something. And we're showing that we believe in God and that we live by faith. First Peter Chapter 1, sorry, I have a little tag in it here, goes through the same thing. It talks about the faith that we have that's given to us, that's imperishable, the inheritance we have, that it comes to us by the power of God through faith, and it goes down and lists, and it comes to the point, point where it talks about the prophets and those who'd looked into those things. Again, we're talking about Old Testament people looking forward and what they didn't know, but what we know, because what they told us we would know. And then it gets to verse 13, and it says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Okay, listen, this is what it's about when you're at the place with your grandchild or your child, and you know that something needs to be done for you to confess your faith, that you're an alien. Your mind has to be prepared for action. 
so that you know at the right time what you have to do. Well, maybe it's ha- you have to side with the Christians like Moses did. Or maybe it's you hide somebody under the straw like Rahab did. Right? And you can just go down through the list of the things people had to do. But what you have to do is find a way to discipline your granddaughter. Or your daughter or your son. And you have to find it so that you can live confessing that you believe. Every one of us have these decisions constantly, constantly, constantly. And they're otherly decisions. They're completely otherly to this world. And the people around us don't understand them. And so when we live by faith, we live believing that God has prepared a city. And he has. God has prepared a city. That's our home. You understand? The closest we get to it is here. That's why when Jody was preaching about coming into the church and when you hear a sermon on Psalm 73, you hear about the effect of coming here. If I say, coming, if I say how many of you believe children should be disciplined as an act of love to save their souls, most of you would raise your hands. Let's try it down at the farmer's market. Right? How many of you believe children should be disciplined to save their souls? Somebody arrest that man. You understand? And so when we come here, we have a context to understand the city of God. We have a little taste of what we will have coming to us from our heavenly Father who loves us and has compassion on us. And mothers, fathers too, mothers, I just want to say to you, and what we're saying to you is have faith. Have faith and believe. It's counter to this world, it's difficult. You bear all kinds of reproach, and I pray for you. We pray for you because we know it's difficult to be a mother and godly in this world today. God bless you, but have faith because you are an alien here. Go ahead and confess that you're an alien. And believe God because you'll have tastes and tastes and tastes of what's to come here in this fellowship and soon in the fellowship of the saints of God from all time and in the presence of Jesus himself. Okay, God bless you. Would you come here, please, love? Yeah, come on up. I've never done this before, but there's a first time for everything when you're 59. This is my wife. Her name is Mary Lee. And I love her very much, very, very much. She was raised in a home where um, there was one child out of ten who was spanked. Her mother just told me a week ago that that child was spanked more than all the other children put together. And then her mother said, and she teared up and she said, and look at what a gentleman he is now. What she really meant to say was, look at how godly he is now. Because Peter is godly. This is Chris Taylor's dad. And Mary Lee, a couple of years ago, said to me, so discipline didn't come easily for Mary Lee. You can imagine what a rude awakening it was to wake up after the honeymoon and to find she was married to me. Is that that pretty true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing she didn't know is I was going to be a pastor. That kind of shocked her, too.
right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason I have her up here is to say to you that um, on one of the one of the joys of my life is that my children have have loved me for disciplining them. You really can separate in this church the people who stay and the people who leave by the people who love discipline and godliness and those who despise it. And that's how a church should be, right? Well, in our home, there has been discipline of every child, all right? And you you remember a a few minutes ago I said about Taylor that, you know, I'm glad that Nick's going to take him off my hands. I'm sorry I said that. That's absolutely not true. I would not give up Taylor for anything, and I want you all to know this. The, the last child you make fun of, and it's kind of a contagious disease. You know, it, it goes from children to parents back to children, you know. But there are two things I want to tell you about Taylor. Eric, you listening? Number one, Taylor has had to be disciplined a lot. And, and not just when he was young, but now that he's old, he has to be disciplined. And about a year ago today, was it, or two years ago? I think it was a year ago today. He gave his mother, uh, uh, what would you call it? A piece of wood. Yeah, a piece of wood that he had. What do you call it? Etching, burned. Burned, and it sits on, and it sits right at the kitchen sink. And what is burned into it? Tell us what's burned into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 from it's from Proverbs, and it's. You know, essentially pursue godliness and it will make your mother happy. Okay? And then out in the woodpile, I'm very sentimental, and out in the woodpile there are four or five pieces, big, big logs. And Taylor took my chainsaw, by the way. Just want to remind you of this. I haven't seen it in a year, but my chainsaw. <laughs> Taylor took my chainsaw and he he used the tip of it, which you should never do this. But and and he what what does it say? It says, "Dear Mom and Dad, I love you," or something like that. And uh, so so this is our youngest son, who will be married in what a year from now or something like that. Yeah. And so, discipline your children. Would you please discipline your children? Live by faith. It's hard. But the fruit in your children is unbelievable, and you won't stop disciplining them when they become adults. All right? You're going to have to discipline your children when they're married. You know, because they're going to ask you to do something, or who knows, I don't know. It's whatever is in your family. Now, this is the reason I brought my wife up. You can imagine that disciplining our children was not easy for this sweet lady, right? And do you know one thing she told me in the last couple of years? She said she's so glad she has me as a husband. And that was pretty shocking, (laughs) honestly, you know. She has part German, and Germans never compliment anybody. 
And, and then she said, why? And do you know the reason she singled out? She said she was so happy that she had a husband that disciplined her children. So, if you want your wife to love you, make her angry all the time. <laughs> right? Yeah.